present to you today the webinar on the basics of dads and custody in Texas. So this webinar is approved by the Texas Bar Association for two hours of CLE credit with a half an hour of ethics credit. So uh, we're real excited to present this to you today. Keep in mind that this is for educational purposes only. So this is intended for the continuing legal education for lawyers. For those of you out there who are not lawyers that might be tuning in to our program, welcome. However, remember that anything that has to do with your specific situation, you probably want to talk to a lawyer about so that you can get specific advice tailored to you. Do not rely on anything that we say in this program as specific advice tailored to your situation because your situation very well could be different. This is for educational use only by a whole bunch of lawyers that are out there watching. So welcome to our program. We're going to get started. We're going to do this in four sections of approximately 30 minutes each. And I'm joined today by Michael Wasaki, my partner with uh, O'Neill Wasaki, and by Ryan Siegel. So we, and Ryan is also an attorney at our firm. So we uh, have come together today, the three of us specifically, to talk about dads in custody um, based on some recent cases that we've had and uh, based on some lessons that we've learned on those cases. So we're real excited to present this to you today. Be sure to comment a lot in the comments and give us a lot of feedback. We'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. We're gonna start with section one on the basics of a suit affecting the parent-child relationship. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. We are going to start with the basics of a suit affecting the parent-child relationship. Uh, my name is Michelle O'Neill with O'Neill Wasaki. I'm joined today by Michael Wasaki, my partner. Um, your camera's over here. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he'll cut that out. Uh, I'm joined today by Michael Wasaki, with my partner with O'Neill Wasaki, and by Ryan Siegel, also an attorney at our firm. So let's get started on the basics of a suit affecting the parent-child relationship. So Ryan, why don't you kick us off? Tell us what is a suit affecting the parent-child relationship. Well, if you've got a kid, you've got a SAPSER, it's called. Um, so tell everybody what a SAPSER is, sure. just in case they don't know. Suit affecting parent-child relationship. In it, there are three main categories that I break it down to with every client. Okay, so you what have, are those three? You have conservatorship, and the way I describe that is decision-making regarding the child. Okay. Uh, next, you have terms of access and possession, which is who gets the child when. And lastly, you have child support. All right. How much is going to be paid for the child? Okay. So, uh, Michael, you want to talk about the two different types of conservatorship? Sure. In Texas, we have uh, particularly two types. Um, the one you see most often uh, awarded by the court is what's called joint managing conservatorship. Uh, joint managing conservatorship under our statutes is presumed to be in the best interest of children. Uh, and what a presumption is, is a legal presumption, which means when you walk into the courtroom, uh, it's the judge already has it uh, uh, ranked number one on his list uh, that joint managing conservatorship should be what should happen. Uh, therefore, evidence would have to be put on to convince him that or her that uh, uh, that joint managing conservators should not be appointed. 
Uh, joint managing servitors are just like it sounds. Uh, rights and duties are typically joint or shared, uh, fairly equal. Uh, sometimes courts will deviate from that and uh, award certain parents exclusive rights or uh, shared rights to be made uh, jointly by the parents, such as um, medical decisions, um, particularly invasive medical uh, decisions such as if the child were going to have a surgery um, or uh, the uh, right to uh, designate a uh, therapist or uh, psychologist for the children. Sometimes the court will make that right uh, joint or exclusive to one parent or another. Uh, also under joint managing conservators you often see the courts designate a primary conservator. Um, you'll often uh, hear uh, from other attorneys that, well, this case is about, you know, who's going to, the court's going to designate the primary conservator, which is oftentimes a contested issue uh, when, when both parents uh, believe that uh, they are best suited to be named that primary conservator. The second type of conservatorship that you see is what's called sole managing conservatorship. Under that, uh, you have a sole managing conservator and a possessory conservator. Naming on this one's a little bit backwards because the, the, well, the sole conservator is the one that has the sole rights and duties to make uh, the decisions with regard to the children. Uh, of note with regard to sole managing conservatorship is that the court cannot in, in, uh, put in place a residency restriction uh, restricting that sole managing conservator's uh, residence to any particular geographic area. Uh, which is which is oftentimes significant for people seeking sole managing conservators. Uh, additionally, a sole managing conservator, um, uh, in order to obtain sole managing conservatorship, there's a number of prongs that have to be met uh, that are specifically listed out in the family code, uh, most often requiring uh, the court to find family violence or something uh, along those lines in order to be able to grant it. Uh, the non-sole uh, conservator in a situation like that is named the possessory conservator, which is much like it sounds, the parent who simply has possession and access on occasion but does not necessarily have any rights and duties. All right, so let's talk about um, when you said the, that, that it takes like a finding of family violence or whatever to get to the sole area. What are some things that you've seen that have caused a judge or a jury maybe to go into a sole custody, either of you guys, into a sole custody situation and away from the presumption of joint? What are some of those kind of big ticket items that might cause it to flip in that direction? Uh, for me, I guess the most recent one that I had was a situation in which the mother was uh, accusing my clients uh, of sexual abuse of the child and those allegations turned out to be false and the judge and didn't she make several allegations that were false correct right she she made over a period of time I believe it was probably four or so over over about a year span and and the judge upon once it was proved that she violated the court's order, which was specifically saying do not talk about these allegations with the child, she violated that court's order. And the judge immediately at that point said she is now a possessory conservator. My client was then awarded, uh, as Michael explained, sole managing conservatorship yeah. and was given the ability to make 
um, to have all those rights and duties for the child. So. And, and the way I like to say it is that, that it takes like, like a big ticket item, like drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, some sort of abuse of the child, um, domestic violence, but the code actually doesn't require it to be absolutely that high, right? Sure. Sure. So what are some times when it hasn't been something that obvious? So I've seen a case where uh, one parent elected to move a significant distance away. And in, in the case that I saw, the parent moved, I believe, to Nevada to take a professorship position. Uh, and the court in that case found that given the party's inability to co-parent when they lived close to each other, uh, compounded by the uh, now new distance between the two parties that the court felt that in that circumstance the children needed a sole decision maker and appointed the uh, local parent, the sole managing conservator. Uh, that way they didn't have to make, I guess, long distance decisions with yeah. the other parent. And so you're, so you're right, you point out a, a, a important fact that it's not necessarily limited to family violence or bad acts or uh, drug or alcohol abuse. That's right. Yeah. And, and so uh, it can be something as simple as the court feels that the parties cannot jointly make decisions together. Uh, and in that case, it just helped that there was an, uh, an additional factor of distance between the parties. Yeah. So, Michael, in that case, was there a prior order? Was that the initial? There was a prior order. Okay. So it was, there was a prior order. This was a modification. Um, and the prior order was joint managing servers. So. I've seen cases where people just chronically can't get along. And I think that's enough under the statute, just proving that they chronically fight over the color of the sky. You know, um, you know what we see, I think, more often is that judges will leave that maybe as a joint conservatorship because both people care a whole lot and then allocate rights and duties. But I have seen judges that get so tired of the fighting that they just go over into soul and possessory territory um, because of the chronic fighting. And so I think that's, I think that's enough, you know. Right. And, and one thing that's always taken into consideration is that the judges do have a lot of discretion on those things. So like you're saying, I mean, they might just say, okay, joint managing conservators, but at the same time, give one party, you know, nine out of ten rights and duties right. something like that right. and in which case you know you, it has almost the effect of being a sole managing conservatorship but just purely entitled as joint managing conservatorship. right right so, so that that brings up a, a good point that i always try to make whenever i'm meeting with a new client is this distinction between the title versus the rights and duties and so the title i mean i always tell clients like they could call you mommy and him daddy or you know whatever and they could call you the king of America. It the title itself doesn't really matter because it's followed up by these rights and duties that are what matters, right? Correct. And so the, the, with joint custody, it's not necessarily like when people think of joint custody, I think lay people think of 50-50, like time. But when we're talking about the title and the rights, it's not necessarily 50-50 time, right? That's right. So with a joint custody situation, um, we think of the quote-unquote primary parent that from a technical standpoint is the parent who has the right to determine the geographic restriction so Michael talk for a minute about why that geographical restriction is so, why that primary right is so important in a joint managing conservatorship situation 
Sure. So the right to determine the primary residence of the children, what oftentimes you'll hear other lawyers and or courts refer to as uh, the primary parent, uh, that parent most often, or what, what I oftentimes hear courts say, the significance of that parent is, is designating the children's school or designating the children's primary abode. Uh, primary residence, uh, which oftentimes, again, dictates what school they go to, uh, which, if you've handled enough of these cases, you know is oftentimes a significant issue between the parents, uh, you know, whether parents have a particular affinity for a certain public school or whether uh, one parent uh, believes uh, and to the disagreement of the other parent that the children should attend a particular private school. Um, uh, that is often a uh, hotbed issue uh, and uh, thus making that designation very important. And the, the, the being the primary parent also kind of dominoes into some of the other issues regarding parenting time as well. Correct. Oftentimes the primary parent is the parent who would receive child support um, and oftentimes the primary parent is the parent who has the edge with regard to possession and access. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, more than 50% of the time. Yeah. yeah. And so, so then making this distinction, we've talked for a minute about the titles. We've talked about some of the rights and duties. There's also the issue of parenting time. And so just because you're joint managing conservators doesn't necessarily mean you have 50-50 parenting time. So let's talk for a few minutes about parenting time. Um, Ryan, you want to talk about like the standard schedule and kind of what people expect from the standards in the Texas law? Sure. So Texas law has a presumption that a standard possession is in the best interest of the child. Standard possession is kind of a rubber stamp that judges will typically put on on a possession order. Um, as Michael was saying, the primary parent uh, has most of the time typically most of the time, and then the other parent will receive some sort of possession schedule. Standard possession schedule, state of Texas, is first, third, and fifth Thursdays from from 6 o'clock on Friday through 6 o'clock on Sunday. Then you have Thursdays from 6 to 8 during the school year. You have some extended time during the summer, which is usually 30 days, and then you split weekends, uh, or excuse me, split holidays, such as Christmas, Thanksgiving, spring break. Right. And so when people, when lay people kind of think about like possession periods, like, you know, those are kind of what, what most people think of as, as the standard schedule in Texas. Right. Um, and then there's some extra rules if you're over 100 miles away from each other. So what are those? So, what, what changes? So over 100 miles, those, those weekdays on Thursdays typically, those are going to be removed. And so what the courts are saying is, we get that there's a big distance. So what we're going to do is just kind of glob the possession times in into bigger chunks, if mm -hmm. you will. So instead of those Thursdays, the, the person with a possession schedule is going to get either first, third, and fifth weekends, or they have the option to do one weekend of their choosing as long as they get So it could four, be a second weekend. It could month. be a second weekend as long as they give 14 days written notice. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, instead of the, the 30 days in the summer, they're going, they have 42 days in the summer. And so that is, they're going to get bigger chunks of time there. They're also going to get every spring break. So those are going to be the differences when 
parties are further apart. So when Michael was talking about the geographic restriction and whatnot, that geographic restriction usually takes place um, and is in place while the parties are in the same vicinity. But let's say let's say a father gets a new job in I don't know, let's California or something. That geographic restriction is typically going to be removed. But if the other parent moves, if the other yeah. parent moves, but that they're still going to have that possession schedule in place. So, and then and then we have a lot of people, a lot of dads that are wanting 50-50 right now, but the. Family code doesn't really have a provision in it for 50-50. Correct. So how do we get from Texas family code has this standard schedule in it to moving to a place where dads are requesting Mm 50-50 and receiving it? Correct. Yeah, so uh, what you've seen over the last um, significant number of years, uh, it's not anything recent. It's, It's been a... A change that's taken place, gosh, for at least over the last 20 years, uh, is a uh, shying away of what uh, was often referred to as the tender years doctrine or a kind of a mentality or doctrine where parents would favor, or I'm sorry, where courts would favor mothers as the primary parent uh, with regard to young children, um, particularly infants, adolescents. Uh, uh, and what you've seen is a systematic shying away uh, from that ideology. Uh, and then what you've also seen is a, uh, what I would call more of a stepping up of uh, fathers. Uh, as women uh, have, as we all know, taken a much more significant and active role in the workforce, uh, you see fathers also taking a much more significant and active role in the home and or child rearing aspect as well. And so courts uh, have been uh, basically forced to take recognition of that, that, it, that it's not uh, what you had back in the 20s or 30s or 40s or even 50s uh, anymore. It's, uh, you, you definitely have uh, circumstances here in the United States where fathers are taking a much more active role, which has led those fathers to um, seek things such as equal rights and duties equal access and possession and the courts I've seen courts balance that in a number of ways Uh, sometimes the courts will um, uh, with regard to the possession anyway we can talk about the conservatorship uh, aspects later but with regard to possession uh, giving uh, if the father had a standard possession schedule perhaps giving him an extra day such as uh, Mondays uh, or uh, Wednesdays on on top of the standard Thursdays or you uh, hear of things such as a 225 possession schedule or a 223 possession schedule, or um, you'll see week on, week off possession schedules, right. uh, all of which balance out to approximately a 50 50 schedule for the parents, uh, all of which have become uh, much more commonplace uh, and you see being awarded a lot more. And I think, from my perspective, one of the keys to, to what's going to happen with the parenting time schedule is knowing the judge. I mean, I can think of one judge that we routinely practice in front of that um, wouldn't give uh, more than a basic standard schedule, much less any of the even little adjustments that most judges routinely give, much less a 50-50. I don't think this one judge has ever given a 50-50 and affirmatively states he would never give a 50-50. 
Um, and, you know, and then we've got other judges who almost start out in the beginning of a case with a mindset of a presumption that parents are equal right. and routinely grants equal. So what role then does the judge play in, in, you know, in kind of helping those decisions along? Sure. Well, oftentimes, you know, I tell my clients, look, a good lawyer knows the law, but a great lawyer knows the judge in the sense that a great lawyer understands how the judge thinks. Um, you know, I started my practice out in uh, East or out in West Texas, and you know, I knew the judges. I knew where they lived. I knew their spouses, their children, the things like that. And so I kind of knew how what made them tick. Uh, and that's what you would hope to find in a lawyer when you hire a family law attorney, especially when you're seeking things such as conservatorship access and things related to possession. You want your lawyer to know how the judge feels about certain things. Uh, and oftentimes with regard to these 50-50 schedules, it depends on what ideology the court subscribes to uh, with regard to that because there is um, research out there that suggests that with regard to a 50-50 schedule that it creates a circumstance where a child doesn't really have a quote-unquote home. Um, in other words, a child feels like that the child doesn't have a primary residence, that the kid, you know, sometimes I live at mom, sometimes I live at dad, but, but I don't, I myself don't have a home. Um, and so there's a lot of literature out there on that. And then, of course, there's a lot of literature out there as well that suggests that that split parenting time is, you know, as, as good as it gets when you have a situation where parents are divorced. And so it, it just, you need to know which, um, what type of ideology your judge subscribes to. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you mentioned, or one of y'all mentioned, um, a child under three. So what are, um, Ryan, what are the, what's the deal with possession of a child when a child is under three? What, is there a standard schedule? It's very discretionary. It's not, there is no standard schedule. And going off what Michael said, it's, it really has to deal with who you're in front of, which judge you're in front of. I mean, depending on which judge I'm in front of, if I'm dealing with a child under three, it can, my advice to my client might be wildly different depending on who we're in front of because you can go off that. I mean, some judges, you know, I've seen some judges that are, you know, want to limit the time that a dad might have and might say, you know, we're going to give you a few hours a week while this child is under six months old or something like that. I was just in court about a week or so ago and the child was two months old and the judge gave my client essentially more or less a modified standard possession. So it really depends on that judge you're in front of and what that judge's mindset is because it is they have a whole lot of leeway under the family code because the family code just says standard possession for over three but under three, pretty discretionary. Yeah. So, and I've seen judges that'll grant standard possession mm -hmm. for an infant, and, and I, I think that that a lot of judges, there's a big distinction with a lot of judges between, um, like you said, a two month old, like a child under six months old, versus the six months to like eighteen months, and then eighteen months to three years. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, a child is very different at two months old than a child is at three years old. So I think there's a, a lot of judges that that look at those children very differently. Yeah, and a lot has to go with the individual facts for that, for that case because, 
for instance, if the child is breastfeeding or not. I mean, that's going to be a big factor in what the possession schedule is. Although I have some judges, even with a breastfeeding infant, who have said, you know, that's why they make pumps and yeah. that's why they, you know, that's why they, um, you know, have have alternatives for mm -hmm. breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And I've seen judges that make moms pump and give the baby in the pumped milk to the dad for, you know, for possession periods. Right. Um, have you ever seen a judge give 50-50 on an infant? Mm, I don't know that I have, um, but I have seen, uh, like Ryan refers to, I've, I've seen some courts provide possession schedules that are pretty darn close. Yeah. I actually, I've, I've seen a judge uh, give 50-50 on some breastfeeding infants on two twins. But the parties had a, had a nanny, had a day nanny and a night nanny. And so the day nanny and the night nanny kind of just went with the kiddos and, you know, in between the parents. And then the judge in that case did a nesting um, in the house, which means the children stayed in the house, the parents moved in and out. And so I think that it, that it was designed by the judge to preserve as much of the status quo for the children but you had a very active father in that situation. I think the more active the father, the more that you can show that act activity that the father has been involved at that point, I mean, I think that you're more likely to make that happen. Right, and just going off one thing, because I know that it came up in a case of mine within the last year or so, but the standard possession schedule itself is roughly from the research I've seen. I haven't done the counting myself, but it's about a 57-43 split. So when we're shading towards the 50-50, I always tell my clients, keep that in mind because, you know, when they want these joint managing conservatorships, I say, well, hold on. It, it really, what we're talking about is possession time. So let's talk about what their difference really is right. here. And so that's one thing to keep in mind as well. Yeah. And I think that's an important point to make as we kind of go into the next um, three um, uh, sessions of the webinar is that we got to know what we're fighting over, right? I right. mean, I mean, if you're going to have, quote unquote, a custody case, I'm going to sue for custody. You know, what are you really fighting over? Right. And, you know, you're fighting over maybe the right to designate primary. You're fighting over maybe parenting time. Am I going to have less than 50-50? Am I going to have more than 50-50? Maybe you're fighting over I'm better at making certain decisions than the other parent. But it's, it's, it's easy for, I think, lay people to say, I'm suing for custody. But I think what, what makes a difference is kind of parsing that out into what are we really fighting over. Right. So let's talk, we've got about five minutes left on this session. Let's talk for a minute about how, you know, how we go about fighting. So jury trial and non-jury trial. Texas, interestingly, is the only state in the country that allows jury trials in custody cases. But that's not necessarily the grand thing that everybody thinks it is, right? Right. So, Michael, talk about what that means in Texas. When are you entitled to a jury trial and what still does the judge get to decide? Sure. So, uh, in Texas, in a conservatorship case, you can request a jury to make determination of uh, whether or not as we discussed earlier, the parties should be joint managing conservators or whether there should be a sole managing conservator. 
And uh, if the jury believes the parties should be joint managing conservators, then the jury can determine the which one should be primary. And the jury can determine uh, what residency restriction, if any, should be put in place. Uh, and so those are the things that a jury can uh, decide in our state related to conservatorship. Which means a judge gets to decide everything else. That's right. So that means the judge gets to decide who's going to decide where the kiddos go to school. That's right. Judge gets to decide uh, who's going to make medical decisions. And, and most importantly, possession. And the judge gets to decide what the possession schedule is going to be. Even if the jury gives you know, a dad the quote-unquote primary designation, the judge still gets to decide the possession schedule. That's right. Um, and child support, too. Right. We haven't talked much about money. I'm gonna, we're going to do a, an entire webinar in August related to child support with two of our lawyers here at the firm that are um, child support experts. So we're looking forward to that, but this is really more about custody, not so much about money. So I'm not gonna focus too much on that unless you think we should. Um, so yeah, so how do you, like we're getting kind of more into strategic, aiming toward mm -hmm. the second session now talking about some strategies, but taking this kind of basic law, how do you kind of start looking at you know, making those decisions. Do you go to a judge? Do you go to a jury? A judge is still deciding temporary orders. That's right. Um, so how do you kind of start making those decisions? Well, um, every, that decision is always significantly uh, fact-intensive. Um, and uh, in my opinion, it's uh, jurisdiction, you, you, uh, dependent upon your jurisdiction as well. Uh, because uh, your jurisdictions can, uh, you can oftentimes figure out the ideology of your jurisdiction uh, based on, for instance, voting. Uh, we all know that Dallas is a significantly blue uh, county, whereas Collin County has for a significant period of time been a very red county. And you know that based on uh, those things that people in, uh, for instance, Collin County might not find amusing, versus uh, things that people in Dallas County may not be so stressed out about. Uh, for instance, um, use of recreational drugs. Dallas County, you know, there's a significant push for instance of legalization of marijuana. Not so much a significant push in Collin County for legalization of use of recreational drugs. So if you have a parent who's doing drugs, um, and uh, you're in Collin County uh, and uh, you feel that perhaps uh, your court uh, has not taken that issue as seriously as you want them to, you might consider uh, requesting a jury because a jury in that county, in that jurisdiction, may take that issue much more seriously than uh, your, your judge did at temporary orders. Uh, and so that might be something you take into consideration. Do you also find in representing fathers, though, that the more conservative counties are or are not also more conservative in the traditional family role models, like the mom should have custody? Significantly, significantly so. Um, and, um, you know, for instance, I had a, a jury trial in Collin County a handful of years back where we had fairly significant bad acts on the part of the mom. Um, uh, we weren't necessarily... 
uh, our main goal wasn't necessarily to obtain uh, conservatorship. Our main goal was to obtain a residency restriction because our judge had allowed that mom to move to New York. Um, and, and so uh, we had asked for the jury because, and not only are juries like that, um, you, you know, to use that they may prefer mothers to be the primary over fathers, but they also, uh, being conservative, are much more prone to keep the family together. And so in our case, we knew that, we asked for a jury, and the jury did implement a residency restriction requiring mom to come back to Texas, yeah. which is exactly what we wanted. Yeah. All right, well that uh, is about our time on the first session. I would like to let you know that we have uh, a book called What You Need to Know About Divorce in Texas that covers a lot of these basic issues. So if you have questions about this, this is available on Amazon for purchase. Uh, you can just go over there and purchase it, it's $10 and read all about all the basics of uh, Texas divorce law. So, and it also has chapters about custody, child support, whatever. Um, so we're going to take a little break and we'll come back in just a few minutes and we're going to move on to the second session of our webinar, which is strategies before a suit is filed. We'll be right back. that this is a webinar that's aimed at attorneys. This is for continuing legal education. If you're out there watching this, this webinar and you're not an attorney, we welcome you to watch it. But remember that we are not giving you any specific legal advice. We cannot comment on any specific case or situation without knowing all the facts. So if you need legal advice, this webinar is not a substitute for legal advice. Please, please seek the advice of a lawyer as to your specific situation and get specific advice to that. Because if you rely on just what we're talking about here, we're being general, we're talking about general legal pr principles that may not actually apply to your situation. This is for continuing legal education only and we cannot create an attorney-client relationship just through the video camera, okay? Thanks.